We have been studying the Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 10 this morning. And as you're finding that, for me to say that the Christian is to live differently than the culture is certainly nothing new nor earth-shattering. It's not a revolutionary claim. You've, You've heard that before. We know that because we are new creatures in Christ, that is, because we have been saved, there are new demands upon our lives. There are new commands that we are expected to follow. This is usually fleshed out by saying there are some things that maybe you used to do that now you must avoid. Perhaps there are some places that you used to attend, but now you no longer go there. Or maybe it's a matter of there are some relationships in your life that either need to be severed or at least dramatically changed because you are a new creature. Even though we acknowledge that study after study continues to show that there is virtually very little difference, if any, between the way a believer lives and an unbeliever, even with that being true, we know that there is supposed to be a difference. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it goes much deeper than some sins we are to avoid, though of course there is that. It's also a matter of how we think, what we often call a worldview. Do we have a Christian worldview, or is our worldview the same as our culture? Do we have a biblical worldview or not? That is, do we seek to figure out what the Bible has to say and strive to apply that to our lives, or do we simply think like everyone else around us? And the way we think dramatically impacts the way we live, and so this is extremely important. Now, sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, you might say to yourself, well, to the best of my knowledge, I do try to figure out what the Bible has to say and apply it to my life. That is what I am striving to do. And I am not suggesting that you saying that is just saying it because you are in church. What I am saying is that you might really believe you are trying to do that and yet often not even know that you're not. Because we are so engaged in our culture, whether we know it or not, it has more of an influence over us than most of us can imagine. Suppose you give an hour of your week to worship corporately with the church. That's what you're doing now. So on the average week, you give an hour of your week for corporate worship. Now let's add to that the fact that maybe you just came from Sunday school or you go to a life group or some sort of Bible study. So now we're up to two hours then I'm going to assume that at least part of the week you do take your Bible and you read it. So I'm going to say that for the average believer, you're going to take three or four days every week. We're always going to miss some. We're never perfect. But you're going to take three or four days, and you're going to spend 30 minutes a day in the study of God's Word. Now we're up to four hours, the average believer, and frankly, I think this is probably above average. The average believer is spending about four hours a week ingesting some sort of biblical content, whether that's listening to a sermon or a Bible study lesson or reading the Bible for themselves. And every other hour, take away those four plus all those hours you sleep or don't, take away all of those hours and everything else, all of those other hours that I've not just mentioned, You are being bombarded with a cultural worldview that is opposed to the Word of God. So which of these two things is more likely to influence your thoughts and behavior? A few hours of week and Bible intake, be it listening or reading, 
or the constant cultural bombardment that we find through advertising, marketing, media, and entertainment, most likely all of those things, hearing constant messages that are opposed to the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that we give up and quit studying the Bible. I'm also not saying that we disengage from culture that is around us, though sometimes that is appealing. I occasionally watch those homesteading shows in Alaska. Do you ever watch those? And sometimes I think, you know, that might be fun. But Tracy has yet to agree with me that we should try that, and so we're still here. But what we can do, while we cannot disengage from culture, and while we certainly do not want to quit studying the Bible, what we can do is to acknowledge that the demands of the Bible are different from what our culture is teaching us. And we need to know those differences and seek to follow them. Last week, we looked at kingdom entrance. That is, we tried to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which we acknowledged was asked in a way that led to a works answer, but we know that's not the right answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We must repent and believe. That was the message of John the Baptist prior to Christ. That was the message when Jesus began his ministry way back in the early chapters of Mark's gospel, and it continues to be the message here in chapter 10. Today, we are asking a slightly different question. We're not talking now about kingdom entrance. We are talking about kingdom living. How do I live my life now that I am in the kingdom of God? And we are going to do that from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52, which is a lot of verses. And so I'm going to read them section by section as we go through these points so that the Scripture itself is fresh upon our minds as we uh, tackle each particular section. Kingdom living, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will mock him and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days... He will rise. We start this morning with a prediction of the passion. And you know, if you've been with us, that this is now the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts what is going to happen. And this particular prediction is the most explicit and detailed of the three. Now, you might say right away, what does this have to do with kingdom living? What does a prediction of the passion have to do with kingdom living? After all, this particular passage, these few verses do not say anything about how I'm supposed to live. They say everything about how Christ intends to die. But his death and resurrection are not only necessary for our entrance into the kingdom. It is not only the means by which we get into the kingdom. They become then the foundation upon which we live while in the kingdom. Now, we've been saying for several weeks now that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. But the fact is, this is the first time that that is actually stated, specifically mentioned that this is where he is going, and he is going up. That was the customary way of referring to going to Jerusalem. Because though it is only about 20 miles from Jericho, where they've crossed back over the Jordan, 
It is only about 20 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, and yet there is an elevation change of about 3,500 feet. So it was customary to say people were going up to the capital city. It was also customary for rabbis to walk ahead of their disciples. But there seems to be more to what Mark is saying in the fact that Jesus was in front of them and they were behind than merely this custom. I think he's telling us that Jesus is not lagging behind like a prisoner who is reluctant to face his punishment. Jesus is still leading the way, firmly committed to the goal that is before him in spite of how difficult and painful he knows that is going to be. Once again, he takes the 12 aside. There's evidently more than just the 12 disciples in this caravan. And so he takes the 12 aside to inform and prepare them for what lies ahead. And the details of these three predictions are varied, but here he mentions both the involvement of the Jewish religious leaders and the Gentile authorities. And though death by crucifixion is not mentioned, it is implied. That was the normal means by which Roman authorities executed criminals, and so it is implied in the fact that Gentile authorities are going to kill him. Other than that, Jesus is very specific here. He says he is going to be mocked, spit upon, whipped, and all of this is going to result in death. And if this were the only information we had about the death of Christ, we might simply conclude that Jesus was a martyr for the cause. A willing martyr, martyr, no doubt. He is willingly going up to Jerusalem, but a martyr nevertheless. And so to get a broader picture, we need to go elsewhere. And in this case, we can stay in the very same passage we're in. I invite you to look at verse 45. We'll come back to these verses in a moment, but this is just a peek ahead at verse 45. Where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And look at that last phrase. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is a word used to speak of money being paid for a rescue. For example, to release someone from bail or jail. To release a prisoner of war or a slave. A slave could be bought back. They could be purchased for the purpose of setting that slave free. Now here, of course, we are not talking about an exchange of money. Instead, we are talking about Jesus paying the price for our sins, the ransom that God demands, the wrath of God being poured out on Him. God could, simply not, God could not simply look the other way when it comes to sin. His wrath against sin had to be satisfied or atoned for. And that is what Christ does on Calvary, paid the ransom that God demanded, the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, something we will see more about in just a moment. But as a result, those who trust in Christ as their ransom are set free from sin and death. So the death of Christ is no accident. It is no tragedy or twist of fate. It is a deliberate dying as a payment for sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. By the way, don't, don't read too much into that last word of verse 45, the word many. That word is sometimes used as an equivalent for all. Or sometimes it's a word used to refer to the fact that this is both for Jews and Gentiles alike. But if we go back to verses 32 through 34, we see at the end of verse 34 that death is not the end. If he just is mocked and spit upon and killed, 
after being whipped, then again, he is a martyr and a martyr only. But the good news comes in the last statement of verse 34, and after three days, he will rise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the final act that makes everything that preceded it worthwhile and effective. Without the resurrection, he is just a martyr, but with the resurrection, he is a victorious and reigning king, interceding for us even as I speak, sitting at the right hand of God. And because he conquered sin and death and the grave, we can be forgiven of our sins We can transcend death, we can overcome the grave, and we can live with Him forever. And we, of course, will talk much more about this as we move into the passion narratives and as we see the fulfillment of the very predictions that Jesus has been giving. But for now, we reflect on the death and resurrection as predicted because of what it means not only for kingdom entrance, that is, we must by faith trust in Christ and what He's done in order to get into the kingdom, but getting into the kingdom is just the beginning. After that, we live as kingdom citizens because of our grateful response to what Christ has done for us, our gratitude for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf propels us forward to live for Him inside His kingdom. Of course, we know this is not always the case. We're going to see two encounters here. I should say it's not always the case in practice. It ought to be always the case. But we're going to now move to two encounters that Jesus has right after this. One is with two of his disciples, and the other is with a man that we've not met yet. And we would actually expect their responses to Jesus to be the opposite of what they turn out to be. And so let's move to our second story from the prediction of the passion. We move to two of Jesus' disciples vying for positions of prominence. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am being baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. See how it's different now? You're to live differently. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then, of course, the verse we already read, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So from the prediction of the Passion for the third time, We move now to these two disciples, these brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are collectively known by their nickname, the Sons of Thunder, and they are about to loudly thunder their misunderstanding of what discipleship is all about. From these, we see they are vying for positions of prominence. 
Now, you do remember that there has been a similar reaction every single time Jesus has predicted his suffering death, which is just amazing to me that three times he does it, and three times we see these odd responses from the disciples. The first time, when Jesus talks about his suffering and death, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, Lord, this is not the way it's going to happen. Peter cannot fathom not only a suffering Messiah, but the fact that they might have to suffer too. And the second time, we find that all 12 of the disciples are walking along the road, and they are all discussing among themselves who is the greatest. It's very similar here, but this time it's just the two who are arguing over, or at least asking, for places of prominence in the kingdom of God. These two were part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And in fact, that's probably part of what was happening after the, after the second prediction when they were, were arguing about who was the greatest because those were the three that w- were able to accompany Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and see part of his glory. And now James and John are trying to cut Peter out of the equation. And Peter's not going to forget that. Peter's going to tell Mark, which is why we have it recorded for us here in this gospel. And so they come to Jesus with a request. And again, we must not forget that this request, at least in the chronology that Mark gives us, falls right after this prediction of his suffering and death. And they know this question is not appropriate, for they try to get Jesus to agree before they even ask what they want. They come to Jesus and they say, Will you do for us whatever we ask? They want a blank check. They want Jesus to trust him. Lord, promise that you will do what we ask you to do. And any parent or grandparent has probably had a question posed to them very similar. And you know how to respond to that. I'm not going to promise to do whatever you want me to do without you telling me what it is you want me to do. And certainly Jesus isn't going to fall prey to that either. So what they want are positions of prominence, the right and the left seats in the kingdom. The right seat being the highest of honor, short of the king, of course, and the left being second to the right. I was just reading in Luke's gospel this past week about the story where where we are told that when you go to a banquet, do not take the seat of honor. Because if you take the seat of honor and then someone more honorable comes in than you, the host might come over to you and say, you have to move. And in the process, you're going to be shamed in front of everybody because you have to go to a lesser seat. Instead, we read there that when you come to a banquet, you are to take the lowest of seats. And by chance, if the host comes to you and say, oh no, you need to be in this seat of honor, then you are honored all the more when you are removed to this other seat. But here we find two of Jesus' finest, these men who have heard him and seen him and been with him for all of these years, and now what they are focused on is their own importance above the others in the kingdom of God. And here we have a sad and common picture of humanity, whether in the first century on the way to Jerusalem or in this century in Knoxville, Tennessee. We want places of honor and importance. We want to be great. And frankly, we want the glory. Now, we won't admit that. We know the Christian phrases. To God be the glory, we say. Or even when someone does praise us, we say, oh, all glory goes to God. And if we're really spiritual, we put down at the bottom of our emails, sola de gloria. 
To God alone be the glory. That's Latin. So we, we're actually impressing people with our knowledge of Latin while at the same time saying, God gets all the glory. We know those Christian phrases, but oftentimes we don't mean them because there's part of us that wants the glory. There's part of us that wants a little bit, if not even a majority of the glory. How do I know that? I know that because I've seen it take place time and time again in the lives of others and myself when we do not get applauded for what we do in our service for Christ and so we decide to quit. They don't appreciate me. Nobody said thank you for what I did, or at least not often enough, and so we quit serving. Countless Christians are sitting home Sunday after Sunday, no longer serving Christ in any capacity because they will go back to something in the past and say, they didn't appreciate what I did, they didn't applaud what I accomplished, nobody cared about what all the service I was doing because they were wanting the glory. There's no other explanation for that. Except that hidden below the surface is our own desire for glory and recognition. And when we do not get it, we decide that service simply isn't worth it. But let's give these two disciples at least a little credit. They do expect that Jesus is going to receive his glory. So they do know that he is the Messiah, but they are still consumed with a wrong conception of what the Messiah is. In spite of these three predictions, somehow they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem to finally bring about the fulfillment of the promise that God had given the Israelites back in 2 Samuel, where God had said that he was going to put a descendant of David upon the throne forever. Now, we do know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, but not the way they had expected it. They expect that somehow Jesus is going to be glorified in Jerusalem, and they want a part of it. And so Jesus' response is that they do not fully understand what they are asking. In essence, they have asked a superficial question based on a surface understanding of discipleship. And so Jesus goes deeper by using two metaphors. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Now, the word cup is often used in the Bible as a metaphor of the wrath or judgment of God. You remember what Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That is, let your wrath pass from me so that I do not have to experience it. But of course, there he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. So the cup here is a symbol or a metaphor of the wrath of God. Jesus is asking him, can you take the wrath of God for sin as I am going to do? And then he uses a second metaphor, the metaphor of baptism. Now, this is a great example of where we need to understand context in order to interpret Scripture. That's the kind of thing I've been talking about in my Summer Sunday Nights series in the chapel. Because baptism here is not being used as we normally use baptism. We normally think of baptism as that which we do right back there on some Sunday mornings where someone has made a profession of faith in Christ, they desire to make that public, and they make it public by submitting themselves to baptism. And so we, one of our ministers, takes them into the waters, and we put them down in the water, and in doing that, we say we are buried with Jesus by baptism unto death. In other words, we are symbolizing that we are dying to our old way of life, and then when we bring them up out of the water, we say we are raised to walk in newness of life. We are symbolizing our resurrection to a new way of life, kingdom living, to use our title for today. But that is not the way baptism is being used here. 
Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to be baptized. He's already been baptized. You remember back in chapter 1. And so the word is used quite differently here. In fact, it's used synonymously with cup. Jesus is saying, can you be immersed in the suffering that I'm going to be immersed in? Can you be immersed under the wrath of God that I am going to suffer for sin? Now, since they've asked a superficial question, we might expect a similar reply. And that is indeed what we get. They readily agree to what Jesus said. Can you take the wrath of God? Can you be immersed in suffering? And they say, we are able, seemingly confidently and boldly. The desire for the glory of God leading to a quick commitment when they don't know how to count the cost. We are often very good at claiming the benefits of following Christ without counting nor accepting the cost. And Jesus himself said that it is wise to count the cost. Jesus acknowledges that in some measure they would share his faith, fate, though not in the same way that he has done. They are not going to participate with him in the redemption of mankind, but they will share in his sufferings, for suffering precedes glory. But to give these seats of prominence is not Jesus' to give. That belongs to God the Father, for whom they have been prepared. But now we hear what the other ten have been thinking all along. And it is not good. They are indignant, the text says. And you will remember that that is the same word that we talked about last week. Last week it was Jesus who was indignant at the disciples for forbidding the children to come to him. And we said that was a word that speaks of anger that is about to be vented or expressed. It is not just anger that is held within, but it is about to be let out. And now it is the ten disciples who are angry with James and John. And in all likelihood, it is because not only that they are seeking the prime places in the kingdom of God, but likely because they thought about asking before the other ten did. The whole episode shows us that they were all thinking selfishly. Their own best interests were uppermost on their minds. In short, they were acting according to secular standards and a worldly worldview, and they were not thinking like Christ. They were acting no differently from the rulers of the Gentiles, whom no doubt they despised. And so Jesus turns things upside down, which is often what he is very good at. He's going to tell us that living in the kingdom of God is so much different than living in the world, and therefore its citizens should live lives differently from everybody else. What is the defining characteristic of kingdom living? It is service. Serving is to be the the primary objective in the kingdom of God, that we are to strive to serve one another, to be slaves to everybody else, which is dramatically different from the places of prominence that these two disciples are looking for. Now, you might be tempted to say that love is the defining mark of Christianity. I mean, doesn't the Bible say, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, not if you serve one another, but if you love one another. But isn't serving, loving, isn't serving one another an expression of how we love one another? So these two things are not in contradiction. Yes, a defining mark of the kingdom and its living is loving one another, but that love is expressed in service. Striving to be a servant or a slave to all because of our gratitude for God in Christ is the way we ought to live, 
but it is honestly often not on our radar. Most believers are like everybody else in this regard. We want others to serve us. Rather than spend our lives in serving others, we want recognition. I mean, again, isn't this largely what social media has migrated toward? Perhaps it started out as a way to connect with your friends, but it has now evolved into a platform to promote ourselves, and the victor is the one with the most likes. And I'm not trying to convince you to get off of social media, but I am saying you need to recognize the temptation, especially in social media, to be exactly what James and John are like in this text and the very things that God is saying we ought not to be. Now, Jesus, of course, is our greatest example here. Verse 45, again, he came to serve rather than to be served. Many say that 1045 is the pivotal verse of this gospel, the hinge on which everything else pivots. Now, we know that Jesus is more than our example. I I am saying that Jesus is our example of service, but we know that he is much more than that, but he's certainly not less. So to say that his life of service is to be an example for us in serving others is not to undermine all the other things he is and does. Obviously, this verse even says that. He came to serve, but he also came to give his life as a ransom for many. So kingdom living involves a radical shift in our thinking. Rather than vying for positions of prominence, we are to willingly take up positions of servanthood and slavery. And that takes humility and gratitude for what Christ has done for us through the gospel. And if our eyes are on ourselves, that will never be the case. Only as we focus on Christ and His work can we submit to being servants to all because of what He's done for us. And so we move into our third story, which again is is vastly different from the one we've just read. These two disciples are asking for places of prominence. And now we meet a man who is simply giving a plea for pardon. Verse 42, or verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Here is a much better picture of what discipleship looks like. You would think that we could look at the disciples and understand what discipleship looks like. But sadly, they often fail us there, at least prior to the resurrection. But here is a blind beggar who gives us a wonderful picture of what genuine discipleship is all about. We are now in Jericho, and I've told you before, that's where they traditionally crossed the Jordan River back onto the west side of the Jordan in order to go up to Jerusalem. 
This is the only time in, on record that we have of Jesus being in Jericho. But now he is coming out of the city, and as he comes out, he is encountered uh, by a blind man. This is the second blind man, not the same one, but the second blind man he comes across. This is his final leg on the way to Jerusalem. Chapter 11 will be the triumphal entry. But before we get there, he stops and deals with this blind man. Now, this would have been a common sight in any ancient city. There were no governmental agencies to care for people like this. There were no jobs for them to perform. A man with this kind of a disability was left to beg on the streets unless he had family that would provide for him. And frankly, it's not an altogether uncommon sight in major and even major, uh, mid-major cities in our own day. If you spend any time in downtown cities, you will have similar encounters. That is, they may not be blind, but you will have people who are begging for money. And what we often do in these circumstances is we sometimes walk on the other side of the sidewalk or street, much like the Pharisee and the uh, Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. Or we make like we don't hear them because we're busily engaged in a conversation with whomever we're with, and that way we can conveniently ignore their request. We certainly don't make eye contact because then we will be stopped and have to have a conversation with them. Perhaps we react like this because of negative experiences in the past. That is, we have given money before, only to discover that they've used that money for less than noble purposes. Maybe we realize that there are better ways to literally help them than to simply give them money, and so we give to agencies who know more about how to do this thing than we do and trust that they are helping them in the best way possible, and that is certainly a good thing. But we feel guilty passing them by and not doing anything, though the more we do it, the less guilty we become. And so it's very easy to become cold and indifferent, almost not seeing them at all. And this is the plight in which we find Bartimaeus, a man who was likely seen so often he was no longer seen at all. But then he heard that Jesus was coming, and the events cry out for help. He begins his plea for a pardon or mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. Are there messianic overtones to that title? Perhaps for us. But we have no way of really knowing whether Bartimaeus understood that. But now he is noticed. Maybe for the first time in a very long time, he is noticed by the crowd, but certainly not in a positive manner. They seek to silence him, much like they sought to silence or the disciples sought to silence the children in last week's story. Jesus has more important things to do. This is an embarrassment to the city of Jericho. He does not need any unnecessary delays on his route to Jerusalem, and so they are trying to keep him quiet. Here is a vulnerable and needy man who is pleading with Jesus to do something, and the crowd simply wants him to be silent. But he certainly doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus, who does hear his cry and has him brought over. Jesus is not so busy with the crowds and the masses that he does not have time for the one. And I have to admit that even as I wrote that sentence... Not a minute or two after I wrote that sentence this past week, I was interrupted in my office as I was preparing this sermon. The interruption was necessary. It was needed. There was nothing wrong with it. But my initial reaction mentally to that interruption was, I don't have time for this. I'm in the middle of writing a sermon. 
And then when I sat back down and realized what I had just written and what I had just thought, I realized how difficult it is to follow the example of Jesus and make time for the ones that come along our way. I do want you to see that Jesus asked Bartimaeus the exact same question that he asked James and John. When James and John came and said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And that is the exact same thing in verse 51 that he asked Bartimaeus. James and John's reply was a position of prominence. Bartimaeus' reply was a plea for pardon. Have mercy on me. He wants to receive physical sight again, which Jesus grants. But I remind you of something we've seen before, and that is the word that is translated made him well is the same word that is used in the New Testament both for physical healing and for spiritual healing. It is the word for salvation. And I have every reason to believe based on Bartimaeus' response that he was physically and spiritually healed. He had faith enough to plead for pardon, and that's exactly what he received. Now, once again, we see that others demonstrate more faith than the disciples, the very disciples who had been with Jesus for so long. And what a picture of salvation Bartimaeus paints for us. When Jesus calls, he quickly springs up and comes to Jesus when called. And after receiving his healing through faith, the Bible says he followed him on the way. We sometimes make discipleship so difficult. In some sense, it's really simple. He followed Jesus on the way. This man began the story as a blind beggar by the road, and he ends the story as a disciple on the road. He's no longer sitting by the side of the road. He is on the road following Jesus. These two expressions of kingdom living show us how different they can be and yet ought not to be. Bartimaeus expresses faith. James and John want fame. Bartimaeus gets up and follows Jesus. James and John want to sit in glory. And yet these disciples have been with Jesus for so much longer. We must be on guard that our worship and discipleship is not blended with self-interest. That is, we're not seeking this for our own glory. Or worse yet, our self-interest is simply masked as worship and discipleship. Are we seeking glory for ourselves or truly seeking glory for God alone? Is it our name that we're concerned about, wanting people to remember us for what we've done? Or are we concerned primarily about the name of Christ? That is an easy question to answer in church on Sunday morning. I mean, we all know the correct answer. But it is much harder to actually live that out because often our motives are mixed. Kingdom entrance results in kingdom living. Kingdom living looks much different from the world. We are to be servants, yes, even servant leaders. We are not to be dominant or authoritative like the Gentile rulers in this text. We are to be servant leaders, whether that is in the home or in the church or at school or at work or in our community. And we are to respond quickly and enthusiastically to Jesus and completely follow him, even as we see in this ideal response of Bartimaeus, who springs up and follows Jesus on the road. So my question in closing for you is this. 
Does your discipleship, does your kingdom living look more like James and John? That is a plea for prominence or a position of prominence? That's what you're after? Or does it look more like blind Bartimaeus? Who I shouldn't call blind Bartimaeus anymore because he's not blind. He simply pleads for pardon. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then he gets up and follows. Let's pray.